Hello and welcome to Six Sad World. I'm Mari. And I am Jasmine. So today, in light of, you know, the season of love that is coming, the season of love? The flavor of love? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> the holiday of love. love. That's coming. Uh, we had decided to do a, you know, a romantic episode. <laughs> and I hate calling that because it's actually quite dark. But um, <laughs> so what happens when romance is taken too far? Maybe you spend all your time with that person and you stop showering or take care of yourself because you just you just like love them so much maybe me you like stop hanging out with your friends because like why need friends when you when you have a significant other maybe you become like that person you wear the same clothes or maybe perhaps you murder that is also something that people do when they find love and then if you didn't if you didn't guess that is the kind of love, quotation love, we are talking about. And I don't have a clever name for this episode, so deal with it! <laughs> I was gonna go with Killer Couples. You're delirious on that. Or we could steal <laughs> the name from the documentary on Netflix, which is Murderous Affairs. Ooh. Well, we'll see. You guys will probably see when you look at the title of the episode when you go and listen to it, because you're our devoted <laughs> fans. And you love us so much. Yeah. All right. So this means that you start your case. Yes. I'm excited. Or not excited, I, I guess is the wrong word, but I, you know what I mean. We're interested. Yes. Uh, so for this week's episode, I am going to be talking about the murder of Stacey Mitchell, also known as the lesbian vampire killers. Um, I hate to cut you off here, but didn't wasn't yes. there like a movie that we watched at your house called like yes. Lesbian Vampire Slayers or something like that? It was called Lesbian Vampire Killers. Oh, was it? And it is one of my favorite movies ever. <laughs> it is actually the first role I ever saw James Corden in. Oh, he's in that? Yes. I He is the um lovable sidekick i guess you could say sure uh who kind of gets them in this mess in the first place because he's the one that suggests going on vacation Jeez, there's like so much i don't remember from that movie except like at the end there's like a were like a werewolf someone turns into a werewolf or something um it's it's like a gay werewolf oh yes yes and it goes like a woo <laughs> um but yeah because like the whole movie is about um these two british dudes go out into the country um end up in this town that's under a curse of the lesbian vampires and then they have to kill the lesbian vampires i don't even remember so, being british <laughs> that is the that kind of lesbian vampire killers. Yeah. And, like, it's not, like, a good movie. It's one Don't of get those, me wrong. like, movies where, where you do, I guess you do, and be like, you have to watch this movie to see how weird it is. It's one of those, I feel like. It's like, it's like a comedy horror. Yes, definitely. That was their intention. And, like, no comedy horror is ever, like... I don't know, like, super intellectual or whatever. No, definitely not. It is very surface level, I think. <laughs> so, like, anyways, the point is there are ladies kissing, and I like the movie. That's, <laughs> that's all you At the end of the day, that's know. all that matters. The ladies kiss and they're vampires, and that's pretty hot. And I think we can just leave it at that. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Let's go back to the important stuff. <laughs> um... But in regards to these lesbian vampire killers, they're they're lesbians 
who are vampires and killers, is what they're saying. Yeah. Even though it's, it's technically more of a misnomer. Well. And just like a sensationalized nickname that they gave them. Yeah. Uh, before I get started, I'm going to do my content warning because I always forget. Uh, there's mention of sexually motivated violence. I am going to be describing the murder, and there is, like, a blood aspect to it. So if you are uncomfortable with talking about blood, you may not like this. Yeah. All right. So I did try to still stay somewhat victim-focused. Yeah. In telling this story, because I didn't want to kind of get lost in sensationalizing the murderers and then, like, forgetting the victim. I actually started in my case about that, but I'll get into that later after I hear what <laughs> point yours is, is about. Okay. So Stacy Mitchell was a 16-year-old girl living in Australia. In December 2006, while her father was on a work trip, Stacy got in a fight with her mother and ran away from home. That's how Stacy ended up living with Jessica Stasinowski and Valerie Parashumti um, and their housemate, David Ross John Haynes, whose father owned the house. Mm-hmm. So they were renting from him, basically. Uh, Valerie, who was 19, and Jessica, who was 21, were lovers living together. Stacy had been staying with the pair for just about three days. Um, Jessica began to hate Stacy because she thought Stacy was flirting with Valerie. Um, and she also, so Stacy also apparently liked to walk around the house in her bikini. Um, this is Australia, so I'm guessing. Oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I didn't, I don't know the geography of Australia that well. And so this is like in Perth and I don't know how close Perth is to like beaches and stuff. Yeah, like a nice well, warm city. Well, this is like city. in the area of Perth. I don't think it's in. I don't know. I'm bad with geography, but um, yeah. So I guess she was in a bikini a lot, and this upset Jessica because she was like, "Oh, you're getting my girlfriend all hot." Yeah. Um. So, on December 17th, 2006, Stacy called her parents and told them that she was going to come home. They made plans to have her parents pick her up from the bus station the next morning, but Stacy wouldn't be there. Um, to prove that Valerie was not interested in Stacy's affection, the pair had hatched a plan to kill her. The couple even tried to get their housemate, David, to join in on their plan. Valerie told him that no one should destroy your happiness, and you should kill anyone that does. So, like, this is a sentiment I can almost get behind, except for when it's someone's flirting with your girlfriend. So murder them. No. Yeah. No. Um, (laughs) even David, uh, he said that when she said this to him, that he was like, that's a great idea, but I don't think Stacy's worth killing. Like, she was literally there for three days. She was about to leave. When David decided that he wouldn't be a part of their plan because they tried to convince him to help them. Um, Valerie and Jessica threatened to hurt him if he tried to stop them. So they told him to go back to his room and to turn some music up really loud. Uh, the three girls sat down to drink some whiskey together and Valerie and Jessica gave Stacy some tablets to make her drowsy. It's not clear if they gave her the pills or if they mixed the pills into her drink, like... None of the articles I read were very clear on that. David had said that he saw them 
grinding glass in a mortar and pestle and yeah um that they were planning to put that in her drink so it would like hurt her so i don't know if like yeah that was like a real thing and they were actually just like grinding down sleeping pills or whatever um as david returned to his room he heard a loud thud and heard stacy cry out for help Valerie had snuck up behind her and beat her in the head with a concrete paving slab. David told the court that he began to have a panic attack and asked Jessica that he and told Jessica that he needed to get out of the house. According to David, she blindfolded him to get him to the front door and gave him a mobile phone and told him that she'd let him know when it was okay to come back. So he just, like, went off walking and was just like, I'm not going to be involved. Yeah. I'll just let this girl get murdered. Uh. After Stacy had been beaten with the concrete slab, Jessica joined in to strangle her with a dog chain belt, and it took her 45 minutes to die. Um, so they like, so as she was being choked, she was still being hit with this concrete slab. And like, it took her, still took her 45 minutes to die. And that's pretty awful. Like, I try to imagine being beaten and choked for 45 minutes. And that's just like, pretty terrible. It's a very long time to have to suffer. Like because she flirted with you in front of your girlfriend. After they checked her pulse, Jessica and Valerie knelt over her body and kissed. Yeah. Um, apparently, the whole scene just turned them on. Uh, and then using a mobile phone, they filmed her beaten body and were heard laughing and mocking her British accent and... Um, one of the articles said that, um, they were seen abusing her. So I'm assuming that to mean that they were doing stuff to her body. That was just not cool. Yeah, it's super inappropriate. Or I guess inappropriate's not even a strong enough word to describe what that is. Really taking delight in what they'd done. So after they cleaned up, They called David to let him know that he could come back to the house. Um, At that point, they had dumped Stacy's body in a wheelie bin, which I'm assuming to mean a wheelbarrow, in a backyard shed and had left her there. The three roommates were still discussing methods of disposing of her body four days later. They had made a shopping list of supplies, including chainsaws, lime, and spades. That's when the police found her body in the wheelie bin. Uh, when Stacy hadn't shown up or called again, her parents had alerted the police. They came searching for her at the house. And that's when they found her. It's str- not strange, but it's like, it's messed up that he's like, oh yeah, I'm not going to get involved. And then he ends up deliberating with them what to do later on i've i have a bunch of feelings on it and i'm gonna i'm gonna wait to the end to comment okay in court the lawyer said that valerie had a personality disorder which is very vague and unhelpful in my opinion um and that she was aroused by physical torture and violence And it turned out that she was part of a vampire subculture and had been experimenting with drinking blood since she was 10. Um, There's no mention of Jessica being involved in any of the vampire stuff. Uh, Jessica had grown up apparently desperately lonely and was left at childcare centers for 12 hours a day from a young age. she left home at 16 and had gotten involved with drugs, which to me is like not really excuse enough for like murdering people. It's not like 
Like, it sucks that her parents, no. like, left her at a childcare center, but, like, it sounds like they were working. And it's not like they just, like, left her by herself and, like, whatever. Yeah, the like, the fact that they took her to a place where kids are supposed to be taken care of, like, doesn't necessarily scream neglect to me. Maybe they didn't have time to really develop a super intimate relationship with their kid, but, like, they so that they were making sure that she was taken care of. You're never really alone at a child care center. Like, you have the people taking care of you, and then there's usually other children. So it's not like just yeah. being left there is yeah. what damaged her. It was just the fact that she never socialized with the other children. Unless in Australia, child care centers mean something completely different. That is also just because we could assume it's similar to, like, what child care centers child care center means over here in like a North America setting, yeah, like a daycare or whatever. Um, but maybe it's it's different. I don't know. But not too sure. Yeah, like really, there wasn't anything too messed up about her. Um, Valerie did claim that her father abused her. But her father refuted that claim. And so it's hard to say if it was just a kind of last-ditch defense or, like... Yeah, or... Yeah. And, like, that's the thing about learning, like, using information gathered in a trial is that you never know what's actually true and what people are trying to present as fact when it's not. Yeah, to, like, perhaps get themselves out of the situation that they've put themselves in. It's because people will kind of just say anything when Mm -hmm. they feel like they're backed up into a corner. And, like, let's be real. Like, a whole trial is basically just, like, anything that comes up is orchestrated by the lawyers, both the prosecution and the defense. Yeah. Like. Because. Yeah. Because the main thing is just to win. Whether. Yeah. Like I don't have not. any. Any faith. In the. Justice system. To be honest. Like I don't have any faith that like. What comes out in court. Is truth and law and whatever. No. It's right. just winning. It's just a competition. Um, the two were apparently obsessed with proving how committed they were to each other. In court, they showed no remorse and were seen giggling and smiling at each other while the crime was being described. So, like, and this is um, because of some delays in the legal proceedings. The, um, the, this court date happened, like, a year after so after a whole year's gone by, yeah. they still don't show any remorse, and they still show some kind of joy <clears throat> in that. Uh, they did Very plead sad. guilty, which is kind of a relief because it's like at least they're not going to drag the family through like a horrible trial. Um, yeah, and they were sentenced to twenty-four years in prison. They were supposed to be separated, but like I've mentioned in the Writers Who Kill episode, there's only one maximum security women's prison. Um, so it they had to be sent to the same prison. Um, yeah. But while there, the two managed to reunite during recreational hours. Um even though they weren't supposed to have any contact at all. Uh, after that, yeah. one of them, and I think it was Valerie, once again, the articles keep saying one of the girls. Oh, so they're not really specifying Yeah, um, who actually did what? But it sounds like it was Valerie, um, was moved to a different prison, and even then, Jessica found a way to smuggle letters to Valerie using other prisoners as a go-between. 
While in prison, Valerie also sued a driver who had collided with her bike in 2004. She had suffered leg injuries, and during the court case, it was suggested that it potentially caused frontal lobe damage to her brain. Mm-hmm. And so I guess they were saying that, like, her, like, this murder was a result of the frontal lobe damage. Um, uh. Her father had made a claim after the surgery originally happened, but they never received a payout. So she won $10,000 in damages and $12,000 in legal costs. Wow. David was sentenced to two years in prison for accessory to murder after the fact. So He done fucked up. Yeah. So at least he did get punished because I do believe that, like, his inaction directly led to her death. Well, yeah, because... He heard her scream for help. He heard all these things. Like, they told him just... they were going to do it. Yeah, that's the first offense, and he did nothing. And then when he realized they were doing it, instead of, like, calling the cops or anything, he just was like, okay, just tell me when it's over and when I can come back. Yeah. And, like, I'm not someone who usually says, like, call the cops. But, like, if someone is in the middle of murdering someone... Yeah. Like, maybe call the definitely. cops. Definitely. Like, by the time they realize that you have called the cops, they can't hurt you anymore because they'll be under arrest. Exactly. And you could have saved that girl's life, who was 16. Like, people have called the cops for less shit. That's murder. Like, you... You... You're not living in a society where you don't have phones. At, like, you, you had every opportunity to do something about it, and he didn't. So that clearly tells me there's something going on with him. Mm-hmm. And or what's going on with him. Also, he's, like, 27, and they're, like, 19 and 21. Yeah. Like, he, his dad also owns the house. Like, he had a lot of power in that relationship, and he did, like, nothing about it. He was, like, he was really the adult in the situation. Like, if some kids... Because, like, by comparison, he's, like, he was in his late 20s and they were in their early 20s, right? Mm-hmm. By comparison, they're, like, children to him. Like, he should have stepped in because that's, that's an authority that he has. It being his father's place. Him being supposedly a responsible adult should have freaking done something. And, like... It wasn't mentioned anywhere that there was any kind of other threats to his life at any point to make him feel, like, super threatened by them. Um, The only thing it mentioned was, like, that the... um, They had mentioned to him prior um, that they wanted to, like, kill somebody. Yeah. Um, And that they had these, like, fantasies. But, like... Yeah. Um, the murder obviously devastated Stacy's family. Her older brother Amazing. ended up moving back to the UK after finding it too difficult to stay in Perth. Uh, her father is haunted by nightmares of his daughter's murder. Um, mm-hmm. He says that she was a bubbly, loving daughter before her death, but now even in his dreams, she he, um, he sees her as She's being murdered. So those images of her are being, like, overwritten. Mm-hmm. And I think... The one thing I, like, really took away from the case was, like, this is why I get, like, really weird about people who, like, use sex positivity to defend their kinks and th- are, like, oh, but it's just fantasies. It's just fantasies. Yeah. It's like, generally, I believe people can have whatever fantasies that they like, but it's like, don't let those fantasies go unexamined. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe there is something 
weird and twisted involved yeah in that fantasy and like maybe you need to deal with that root issue first and then like if that fantasy's still there then like whatever cool at least you've dealt with that issue and it's not gonna come out in some awful way yeah it's like there there are certain like sort of fantasies or whatever that are kind of generally tolerated or accepted but like things like murder I don't even think fall into the spectrum of like taboo like that's something if you're fantasizing about actual murder and actualizing it and like taking the steps and actively planning to do something like that that is not just like a like a sexual fantasy anymore that's that's something else yeah and it's like if you're it's one thing to fantasize about fake torturing somebody yeah it's like like if in your fantasy that person is still enjoying it in some way then that's cool whatever but if your whole fantasy is that they like hate it and like they're in pain and they're suffering and you're taking joy from that that might be something to look into for sure because like that doesn't really stem from like a sexual thing that stems from like a power thing exactly and like if you can't get off without the idea that someone is suffering like that's not good then you're not actually interested in sex you're interested in torture harming somebody yeah so like that's something that definitely needs to be checked out yeah and like as someone who's been involved in the sex posse community for so long like this is something that like a lot of sex posse people will be like well like i don't want to kink shame i don't want to this that and it's like no we still need to examine these things. Exactly. Like, it's one thing for, like, a trans woman to fantasize about being a dominant to, like, a cis male partner. Yeah. Um, because there is actual power dynamics at play in the real world that makes that an unrealistic fantasy. Yeah. Or... You know, it that makes that subversion of power dynamics into something that's different and kinky and whatever. And, like, I can totally understand that. But when it's, like, something like someone in a position of power mm-hmm. fantasizing about dominating someone in a lesser position of power, that's just you reveling in your own privilege. And, like, these girls were both older three to five years older than this girl she had just run away from home so like they were like in a position of power over her exactly she was what 16 so she was a child right yeah i mean i think under australia law like she might be at the age of majority or whatever Uh. um because i know that's what it's like in the uk like you're you can like be considered an adult at 16 i disagree with that but fine your country your laws um i mean canada has similar age of majority laws where like technically once you're over 16 you can have sex with people however much older than you and as long as they're not in like a like an employer or someone in like healthcare or law enforcement yeah or like a teacher like that kind of thing then like it's okay i don't know how i feel about that yeah i like from like now that i'm older if you're (laughs) a 16 year old me would been like oh yeah that makes sense that's fine but well for me like i get it in the sense that like for people that are like a certain amount of years older like i like it better than the u.s laws where it's like if you're 18 and your partner's 17, you can be arrested. Yeah, that's 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 unfair. But, like, 
Like, there has to be some middle area between, like, 16-year-olds can do it with whoever they want and, like, 18-year-olds shouldn't be arrested for, like, doing it with someone a year or two younger than them. I think my major concern is when someone who's 16 is, say, doing it with someone who's, like, 25, 30, and so on and so forth, because then it's, like... I question what the, I guess, the, the much, much older person's 50-year-old or whatever is doing with a 16-year-old. Yeah. But And that's what makes me uncomfortable anyway. Yeah. But anyways, that was my case. And those are my feelings on it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Because, <laughs> like, the conclusion was pretty much, well, that shit sucked. The end. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I guess I have to tell you mine then. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's Erin. And this is Jordan. Each week, we dig up the facts on fascinating felonies. And mesmerizing misdemeanors. Join us as we prove that you don't have to know too much about the legal system to be crazy for a good true crime story. Subscribe to Crime Crazy on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And visit us at crimecrazypodcast.com. He doesn't even go here. All right, so um, kind of back to what we were talking about before. Trust me, this is related. I know sometimes my intros don't feel like they're related to what I'm actually going to be talking about, but it is. <laughs> so, like, I think it's safe to say that we definitely sens- sensationalize and, like, focus a lot on those who, have like, committed the crime or done the killing versus the actual victims when it comes to cases like these. Uh, just recently, as an example, we can talk about the Netflix Ted Bundy documentary. Mm. And like the the Zac Efron ten, Ted Ted Bundy movie, and like how bad it's gotten to the point that like Netflix is telling people to stop saying that Ted Bundy is hot <laughs> because he murdered people, and like we even talked about this in our bonus episode with um what's his name in you Penn Badgley. and how people were like, thank you, and like just all that focus. So I'm. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I want to start off my case by trying to focus on the victims as much as possible. Even if it's just a little bit of information, I want them to be the first priority and, like, the first people that I mention and that you hear about in regards to my case. Because they are the most important people in regards to this case. So that was my little blurb about that. Yeah. Anyway. So the case that I'm going to be talking about uh, was kind of coined as or dubbed the Witch Hunters. So I'm going to talk about the, just briefly, because there wasn't a whole lot of information on the victims in terms of like their personalities, what they were doing and who they are, who they, who they were based on like those who were close to them, not saying a whole lot about them. And it took place in the eighties. So there wasn't like the same sort of obviously internet where people were just putting all their information online so you don't need actually know a person to know a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first victim was Karen Barnes. Uh, she was 23 years old when she was murdered. She was an aspiring actress from Georgia. Uh, she was living with her soon-to-be murderers in San Francisco. They were her roommates. Uh, in March of 1981, she was murdered. The next victim is Clark Stevens who was murdered in May of 1982. A fellow farmhand at a cannabis farm, uh, the perpetrators had fled to in Northern California after uh, murdering the first victim, Karen. The third victim was killed March 1983, uh, John Charles Helliar, a 30-year-old man who picked up the hitchhiking couple around Bakersfield, California. After over 300 miles together, he was murdered by them. And then the final victim is Jen Carson. She is now 43. She was not murdered, but she was the eight-year-old daughter of um, James Clifford Carson, who was the one or one part of the couple who I'm about to talk about. And uh, the stepdaughter of Susan Barnes. And she had a lot to say about the murders. She found out about the murders that her dad committed through the, the news. And she also in- injured 
abuse from her formerly doting and loving father and stepmother once the two had met. Mm. Yes. Uh, Jen Carson has been quite open about what she went through with them and also how she feels about the families who've lost loved ones. She's also actively tries to be vocal and I'll discuss more about what Jen has been doing uh, since her father and her stepfather's convictions uh, closer to the end of my case. Uh, So how did this happen? In 1977, James Carson was in Phoenix, Arizona. He was married with one daughter, Jennifer Carson, as I mentioned before. His wife began to notice a change in his behavior. Uh, At that time, Jen was five years old. His wife became scared of what he was turning into. So one night she grabbed her daughter and she left. Uh, They kept moving every six months and cut off ties with mutual acquaintances to avoid being tracked down. Uh, James made no attempt to track them down. Uh, but they still, they didn't know that, obviously. And they were worried. Can you imagine being that scared? N- no, like that. Like? Like, imagine living happily for quite some time, and then there's such a shift in the, per- the person who you live with that you have to run away, and n- no place will ever feel like home. Yeah. And, like... It just makes me wonder, like, how bad was the abuse that they they truly believed that he was capable of murder at that point? Because that's why people Uh, run away and stuff. Like, it's when they think their life is on the line or their child's life is on the line. Yeah, there hasn't... I couldn't find anything specific. Every source that I found just keeps saying that, like, Jen's mother just saw him, his personality and his demeanor just shifting so much that she feared for her and her daughter that she just had to pack up and leave. So it must have been something incredibly traumatizing that she just... That's all she could really sort of, like, classify it as. Yeah. Um, so James Carson began a relationship with Susan Barnes, who was 10 years his senior, uh, a divorcee with two teenage sons, Uh, James and Susan married and became involved in mysticism. By 1980, after a year-long trip to uh, Europe, the Carsons returned to the U.S. and moved into the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood of San Francisco, California, where they continued their involvement with drugs and the counterculture and, uh, like, the hippie culture and their weird psychic sort of... I don't know. They were a little bit all over the place. Of course. Uh, The Carsons... Yeah, Carsons took the name... Or Carson took the name Michael Bear. She changed the name from James Carson to Michael Bear. Uh, He told his daughter in a letter that God had given him the new name Michael. And then Susan became known as Susan Bear. And this is Susan with a Z or a Z, depending on where you you are in the world. So she just changed one letter in her first name. Wow. Yeah, I know. Creative. Uh, I know, right? If God's going to bestow upon you a new name and he just changes one... It'd be like changing the S in my name to a Z. <laughs> like, and some people do spell my name that way anyway. So Susan believed herself to be a yogi and mystic with knowledge of past, present, and future events. Uh, the, cl- the pair claimed to be vegetarian Muslim warriors. Well, I, don't, I don't know what that means. Uh, who believed that witchcraft, homosexuality, and abortion were reasons enough to kill people. What? Yes. They had a, a list that consisted of celebrities and political figures and just other random people um, like Ronald Reagan, Governor Jerry Brown, and some other people uh, that apparently Susan had like gotten Carson to comprise. She's like, listen, this is what we need. To, this is what God and the Quran is telling us to do. Write these people down because they're on our murder list. And these, uh, this is a white couple. It's a white couple. Very much a white couple. White people, <laughs> you you see these kinds of white people around where they just pick and choose parts of different cultures, and yep. they're like, "It's part of my mysticism." And you're like, "No, it's not." And it's like, "No, no, you're completely. You can't just take things and then be like, like yeah, like I'm doing it." But only just this you one don't. part. <laughs> and I also misinterpreted it really badly. I misinterpreted literally everything. Um, so this list was found by a hiker in a forest area where Carson and Susan were camping. 
and uh, they turned it into the police. Jen Carson and her mother first learned of the threats when the Secret Service showed up at the door in 1982. So this is a few years later. Uh, so, while hitchhiking in a rainstorm, Susan believed she got orders to kill uh, Barnes, Karen Barnes, the roommate, and every time she said it, thunder would clap. This is what she said. Uh, the couple killed Barnes upon their return home. Barnes was... I should have put a, put a warning, but uh, there is violence, you know, severe violence in this case. Uh, Barnes was stabbed 13 times and her skull was crushed. The couple later admitted they used a frying pan on her head. Susan believed Barnes, having faked a conversation to their brand of Muslim, mus oh my god, I, I knew I was going to struggle with this word, Muslimism was actually a witch and was stealing her yogic powers. Oh my goodness. They had written their names on the wall next to her body before they fled. They then later said that instead Barnes declined to enter a polyamorous relationship with the couple and they got upset. In March of 1981, Susan commanded Michael to hit Barnes over the head with a frying pan um, as she was making a snack. The frying pan did not complete the job and Susan commanded Michael to stab her, which he did 13 times. They would later claim it was self-defense. How do you but, claim <laughs> that it's self-defense? If I, if I tell you to do a thing to someone else, completely unprovoked how is any of that self-defense and also like how can you be like yeah after we smashed her in the head with the frying pan the stabbing was also in self-defense i i don't i don't know i don't i don't understand these people they're in their own world or have at least convinced other people that they're in their own world where this all makes sense for some reason uh, so, Michael, oh, sorry. So the bears fled to a marijuana farm in Northern California, like I mentioned before, where they worked as farmhands and guards. Coworkers at the farm described the bears as anarchists who've advocated a revolution and believed a nuclear apocalypse, apocalypse was coming. Uh, Clark Stevens, their second victim, got in an argument that led to Carson shooting him twice in the head. What argument leads <laughs> to you getting shot in the head? Uh, clearly, they don't need much to be provoked at all, based on their first victim and now their second. If you get into you just... an argument with anybody, your first response should not be to shoot them in the head. Okay? Just go take a walk, take a nap, blow off some steam, whatever. Punch a punching bag. A wall if you have to just kick some garbage on the yeah. road eat your feelings i don't know but like, leave the guns somewhere else and for people who are like i don't know we're like vegetarian pacifist like god loving people they really didn't understand pacifism that part that's not how <laughs> pacifism works, folks. Means like they, no violence, zero violence. Like they, they definitely do not. People, and some articles were like, oh, they were like, sort of like the really hippie sort of like cultured people, and I'm like, the, like that, that doesn't make any sense. How would anyone describe them like that? Whatsoever. Because people anyway. were scared of hippies back then. I guess. They were like, oh, those hippies in the marijuana's. Just, they're so chill, they could kill me. I don't know. Anyway, so Michael would later say that uh, Clark Stevens was a demon who had sexually abused his wife. The bears attempted to burn the body in the woods before leaving. Two weeks later, Stevens was reported missing and investig investigators found his partially bur burned remains in the woods. Uh, the police were having problems tracking them down due to their constant movement and inconsistency in the names and places. They did not know that the, this pair was together. They thought they were, like, two different, like, murdering couples on the road. One was the Carsons, 
one with the bears. Oh, because the first yeah. time they named it, they left their name as the Carsons? Yeah, so it's it. they were confused. I would be confused, uh, too. Yeah. And then uh, in November of 1982, Michael was picked up by the, the L.A. police after an acquaintance saw him hitchhiking. Uh, through police error, Carson was quickly freed and disappeared before the Humboldt County de- detectives could question him. He left evidence behind, though, including a mugshot, address information, and a gun left in the police car. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, on to the next victim. So, after over 300 miles together, an argument broke out. These people just argue with everybody. Uh, And Hellier, their third victim, and the bears made him stop his car, and they all got out. Susan started to stab him while he was while they were arguing with him and then michael shot hellier dead jeez louise this all happened on the side of the road on the 101 freeway in full sight of heavy california traffic wow a passerby called the police and a brief high-speed chase ensued michael and susan bear slash carson were caught and arrested jeez so louise. that ended yeah it's just you you can't argue with these people because they'll just murder you that just seems to be the thing it's like you tell them no and they're like oh well i guess murder is the next best option instead of like talking out like a normal person or like you said going on a walk or whatever this is why i hate conflict you never know who's gonna turn out to just be like you know how i deal with arguments murder exactly so, the Carsons agreed to confess if they could hold a televised press conference, uh, which really speaks to their egos. Before trial, they withdrew their confessions and entered pleas of not guilties. Oh. So, they're like, okay, put us on TV. We did it. And then once that was over, they're like, we didn't do it. So, they just I, wanted, what, like, the fame? Like, the... I, yeah, I guess. Screen time? Probably. On June 12, 1984, uh, the Carsons were convicted first of Barnes's murder, their roommate, at Karen Barnes, and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Later, they were convicted of the murders of uh, Clark Stevens and Hellier, for which they received sentences of, sentences of 50 years to life and 75 years to life. And then in 1989, the first district court of appeal affirmed their third conviction so Michael was uh, incarcerated at Mule Creek State Prison, and Susie is incarcerated at Central California Women's Facility. Um, so more about the trial, or I guess the whole, yeah, I guess the conviction. Uh, despite six hours of footage, and where they described the crimes at length, they both pled not guilty with their, when their cases went to trial. Even though they recanted their statements, there still existed the physical um, and testimonial evidence from the, each murder scene, their names uh, written at the first murder and then uh, their list, their kill list that they had as well. And then obviously the hundreds of eyes that saw them murder the last victim on the highway. Uh, so clearly they weren't getting out of that. Furthermore, Michael wrote an op-ed letter to a famous journalist, Herb Kane, about how no one cared that he had rid San Francisco of its most dangerous witch, Oh my god. Yeah. Like You can't be like, give me credit, but also I didn't do it. Like it those two things are so incredibly contradictory. <sighs> and also really you think that was that was California's most powerful witch? <laughs> like like what? Clearly it was not, or else y'all would be the ones that are dead. That's all I'm saying. Exactly. Uh, And this is a quote from Jennifer Carson, uh, the daughter. She said, after a decade, my mother Lynn filed for divorce and sought to put some distance between herself and my father by moving from Phoenix to Tuscan area. I then lived with my mom uh, on the Tohono O'Ram Reservation, where she taught in a literacy program. My babysitter taught me to make tortillas in the outdoor kitchen, while nuns at the preschool taught me the alphabet, my mom taught me the names of cacti, my life from Monday through Friday was happy. 
On the other hand, Weekends at My Stepmother's Home were like a horror film. The inside of Susan Scottsdale townhouse, where my father had moved to be with her, resembled a haunted forest. Instead of lighting or furniture, the entire home was filled with dozens and dozens of tall potted trees. At night, I'd lie awake in the sleeping bag on the floor as I looked at the dark shadows on the wall and thought of my last meal days before. In addition to not feeding me, Susan was verbally and physically abusive. Um, her mom essentially cut ties with her father and stepmom when Jennifer came home with scratches all over her back. Oh my god. From Susan. Yeah. Countless instances occurred where this killer couple's, couple's like stupidity was rewarded with luck. Like they were not... People talk about... And I've, I've seen this a lot in the news recently about like how clever all these murderers are and like how smart and brilliant i mean some of them are but like a lot of it really is just luck yeah michael bear and susan bear were not particularly smart people they just got lucky i mean they full-on wrote their names at a crime scene (laughs) that's not that's like it I, i don't condone murder but like in getting away with murder 101 you don't leave evidence behind like when they talk about a signature that's not what they're talking about <laughs> i mean you're right so <laughs> so it's 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 really not like not funny haha even though i just laughed about your whole signature thing because that was a good joke um, it was right yeah it's just sheer dumb luck that they managed to skirt by for three years granted they were only doing a murder a year so i guess maybe some people don't even make it to one murder so i mean they were pretty lucky um so i want to talk a little bit more about jennifer carson and sort of what she's done she's 40 she was 43 years old or a little older than that now and so when her father and her stepmom were out for parole, she sa- she had this to, to say. Together we fought the parole with a petition. Uh, letter campaign, media blitz, and our presence at the hearing, and my father and Susan are both still in prison. We plan to do the same thing at my father's next hearing in 2020. Susan is up for parole again in 2030. She'll be 90. Um, so Jenna's made it her life's duty to help those who are growing up in tough and abusive households, to help those whose families have dealt with like being related to perpetrators and people who have done harm and like trying to make it so but you can't really make it up to the victim's families as to what these families relatives have done to them but like she's a big advocate for for trying to sort of deal with that uh she helps kids with incarcerated parents and she's just really sort of done her best to try to advocate for victims and 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 help people in that sense so that is sort of the i guess silver lining to this situation because she talked about how hard it was for her to be known as the daughter of a serial killer there's like a big documentary that came out um a while back and that's kind of what she was known as and it was really traumatizing for her she was dealing with ptsd and all those sort of things and she kind of kept it to herself and she was she tried to kill herself at some point you know, she was really, really upset by this. So it's good to see what she's doing with her life nowadays to sort of make up for it. When she didn't even do anything. It wasn't her. Yeah, and it's, like, really important work because, like, as other people have said before, like, the families of perpetrators are usually victims too. Yeah. Because that violence and that aggression isn't, it doesn't just come and go it's usually always there under the surface and the people closest to them are the ones that suffer the most yeah so yeah that that was kind of like despite the horror that happened because like i don't know i hate to think about this but like if someone i was close to or related to did something so terrible i don't know how i would respond bond to that and try to make a difference you know yeah i don't know how i don't know what i would do to try to put that back i guess i guess positive energy back into like the universe to try to do something good because i'm someone who definitely wallows in guilt Mm -hmm. when something when i do something bad or like i know it's 
like I I wish I could do something. It wasn't even my fault, but I like I just like beat myself up. So I like it's it's hard. It's it's very commendable, and that she did all that. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's all there is. <laughs> <laughs> That's all, folks. <laughs> I thought this was going to be much more entertaining than it was. <laughs> you know, we say this like every week. We're, we're starting to become like broken records. We always say X, Y, and Z. This this topic will be either like really entertaining or a really good topic or like not that bad. And then we do it. And then it's either one of those things or all those things. Yeah. And I think it's because we do try to be so victim focused. And even when it's something that's like so gruesome that you like your attention is grabbed, we still try and be like, but people still died yeah and so like i think we buzzkill ourselves but it's like responsibly yeah well the thing is like we're both interested in true crime but it's like we've always we've always been like i guess just the passive listener in a sense where it's like oh i'm watching this thing and they're talking about this thing and it's very very separate but now it's like i have to talk about this thing i have to say these words i have to say what happened and tell other people about it and look into it you know Mm -hmm. so it's a little more a a little bit a lot more taxing in that sense that's true because we do have to do like a lot of research for every episode and so when you dig that deep into this kind of stuff it stops becoming like ooh, this like scary thing that happened into like I can I can see how we got to this place. Yeah. And I can see all the mistakes that were made and all the way that as a society we let these mistakes happen so it gets to this point. Yeah, it's it's just a lot. Like we'll never we'll never be able to like actively be part of those situations to you know talk to the victims like it'll never it's what happened didn't happen to us so we'll never have that sort of like connection but it's still quite hard to just talk about yeah when you when you have when you put a lot of work into it (sighs) hey we made it through we did it we did we did make it through I mean, we always make it through, <laughs> but, like, we always sound, like, we freaking... Deflated. Like, deflated, like, your balloon, just, like, defa- deflated by the end of it. All right. Um, we should probably plug our stuff. Oh, yeah. We forgot to do that last time. Yeah. Um, so, you can reach us on Twitter, which is... Six Ad World SSW. Yeah. And then you can also reach us on Instagram... Which is Six Sad World Pod. With lots of underscores. Get it. Just search Six Sad World. You'll find us. Yeah. Uh, There aren't that many. There aren't that many other ones. You can also contact us by email at SixSadWorldPod at gmail.com. Correct. And as always, we encourage you guys to, like, reach out to us as much as possible. You know, email us, tweet us, DM us, all that sort of stuff. We are also trying to do a listener based episode next month for our anniversary so if you want to be included just send us a message or send us a clip and we'll include it in that future episode yeah also uh if you want to we do have a patreon and if you want to support us you can uh do that at our patreon you know we're looking for more supporters right yes we are (laughs) um yeah and thank you all for listening to another very depressing episode six ad world you know you're all here with us you 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 want to you want to feel the things that we feel (laughs) (laughs) well we will talk to you guys next time and 
don't be a murderer seriously guys don't do it there's so many other things that you can do so many other things play a video game yeah put more good vibes out into like the universe do that take more naps or that too you know just don't murder all right <laughs> promise us that anyway <laughs> we'll talk to you guys next time bye bye bye